0: Hey, y'all, this is John Lawrence coming to you with another episode of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. This is part two of the Top Drawer Rundown, an overview of all the key medications found in an anesthesia cart. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, go check that out. You're going to get the full intro and overview of the series, as well as more background on the series contributor, Michael Mielnicek. Michael is a practicing CRNA in Austin, Texas, with a deep interest in pharmacology, He's joined me to bring you this series on the key medications that anesthesia providers should be masters of. So in part two, we're going to dive in and talk about atropine, glycopyrrolate, neostigmine, and sugamidex. Then we're going to hit the medications metoprolol, labetalol, esmolol, hydralazine, phenylephrine, ephedrine, epinephrine, and calcium chloride. These are all medications that anesthesia providers should really develop a mastery of. I want to touch on the, a quick disclaimer, and then we're going to get right to it. Basically, you need to cross-reference anything that we say before you go and implement it into your practice. As with any blog, podcast, or social media post, you should double-check the info against published resources for accuracy and relevancy. If you want to truly be a master of your craft, you got to read. You got to read and cross-reference whatever you see and hear on social media before you go and change your practice. And this podcast is no different. So we're here to help you review and develop as a provider, but what you do in your practice is totally your responsibility. And with that, let's get to part two of the Top Drawer Rundown. All right. Well, Michael Mjolnicek, we're back for part two of the Top Drawer Rundown. I'm super stoked about this. Uh, This part is going to cover the medications that are commonly used for reversal of paralytics. And then also we're going to talk about, uh, what are colloquially referred to as the uppers and downers. So the stuff to control, uh, the autonomic nervous system. So heart rate and blood pressure and that kind of stuff. So this is going to be, I think, super helpful for anesthesia learners and a good review for anesthesia providers.
1: Yeah, this is a great rundown of drugs. I I think of it as, well, we did our job of anesthetizing and now we have to actually maintain the body in a normal state while it's anesthetized. So that's when we're going to go over all these guys. So. Let's jump into it.
0: Yeah, that's a great way. So, you want to start us off with atropine?
1: Yeah, so atropine is our first drug. Its uh, trade name is isopto. Uh, class of drug is anticholinergic. So, cholinergic basically meaning acetylcholine. So, an anti acetylcholine drug. Uh, method of action is that it blocks the cholinergic receptors. Um, so, the dosing of Atropine, IV or IM is 0.007 to 0.014. A way I remember it is a 007 um, for dosing of atropine. Its usual dose is uh, 0.4 to 0.6 milligrams uh, given IV. Uh, Pediatrics for under five kilograms is 0.02 milligrams per kilogram IV, IM, or sub Q over 5 kilograms is 0.01 to 0.02 milligrams per kilogram IV, IM, or sub-Q. Minimum dosing should be at least 0.1 milligrams and the max single dose of 0.5 milligrams. And atropine is actually one of those few drugs that can be given through the ET tube to achieve uh, your desired effect. And the ET tube dosing is 0.04 to 0.06 milligrams per kilogram. So, onset of atropine is 1 to 4 minutes so it's actually known as the fastest anticholinergic uh, of our drugs that we'll be talking about. Uh, Its duration is about 20 minutes and its metabolism is primarily through the liver and it's actually 50% of it is unchanged and excreted in the urine. So indications for it, so atropine, you probably have heard of it in your ACLS training, it's the rescue drug for bradycardia but it also does many other things uh, not just treating bradycardia to achieve a stable heart rate, but it also dilates the pupils and dries out uh, secretions. It also can cause some sedation because it does cross into through the blood-brain barrier. Um, it, it is contraindicated for narrow-angle glaucoma, prostatic hypertrophy, bladder neck obstruction, and it reduces the lower esophageal tone. So precautions and some side effects to think about for atropine is some constipation, dry mouth, mydriasis, which is dilated pupils, Uh, blurred vision, urinary retention, it can cause, like I said, slight sedation. So if you have an older patient, you want to be aware that they may develop some delirium from it. Um, Also, what's interesting is that atropine at very low doses, which is about less than 0.1 milligrams IV, can cause bradycardia, so the opposite effect of what you're trying to achieve. And it can cause some cutaneous vessel dilation, so some flushing, and it can cause a rise in temperature uh, just because the inhibition of sweating. So safety is not established in pregnancy, so you use it if it's absolutely required. Uh, So just to think about it, atropine, if you need something to emergently raise your heart rate up, that would be your go-to drug. Uh, Anything else you can think of, John?
0: No, I think that's great. You know, atropine is classically paired with edrophonium, which is another one of the reversal agents. I think neostigmine is by far more commonly used, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But yeah, atropine, I think is the go-to, you know, it's part of ACLS. It's super helpful for bradycardia and it's a great drug to be familiar with. So similarly, next up is glycopyrrolate or robinol. It's also an anticholinergic, which blocks cholinergic receptors. The dose for adults, the max dose of glycopyrrolate is 0.007 milligrams per kilogram, or as Michael said, 007. Uh, So 0.007 milligrams per kilogram. The other way that people commonly dose this is when they're giving it in conjunction with neostigmine. You typically give 0.2 milligrams for every one milligram of neostigmine. Now, what's convenient about that is that Classically, neostigmine is is produced as one milligram per mil, and glycopyrrolate is produced as 0.2 milligrams per mil. So many people will dose this as one mil to one mil of glycopyrrolate to neostigmine for an effective uh, pairing for reversal of non-depolarizer paralytics. So the pediatric dose is 0.004 to 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. So I'll state that again. So 0.004 to 0.01 milligrams per kilogram IV. Pharmacodynamics and kinetics, the onset of glycopyrrolate is one to five minutes. The duration of action is two to seven hours. The metabolism of glycopyrrolate has not been studied per the manufacturer, but it has been found to be excreted in bile and urine unchanged. The indications are all the same as that of atropine, except it's centrally acting component. The contraindications are all the above with atropine, including myasthenia gravis. So it's contraindicated in myasthenia gravis, and that's due to the drugs used for treatment of myasthenia gravis or anticholinergics. Paralytic ileus is another contraindication in severe ulcerative colitis. Precautions and side effects include orthostatic hypotension, dry mouth, medriasis, blurred vision urinary retention, it slows peristalsis of the intestine, and there's no central acting component. I think some notes on that considerations, obviously, it's it's paired most commonly with neostigmine for reversal. And then it can also be a little bit of a slower onset, you know, an easy way to get a little bit more of an anticholinergic effect, particularly when it comes to bradycardia. You know, if you have a little bit of bradycardia with say, insufflation of the abdomen on a laparoscopic case. If it's not, symptomatic, sudden, profound hypotension, where obviously you would ask them to drop the abdomen, and you might reach for atropine, whose onset is a little bit quicker than glycopyrrolate. You know, if you just want to bump up the heart rate a little bit, glycopyrrolate is a a great medication to reach for. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I would also uh, add to it is that the big difference between glycopyrrolate and atropine is, yes, speed is definitely one, but another uh, important thing is the uh, when we were talking about the non-centrally acting components of robinol or glycopyrrolate, when you give gl- glycopyrrolate, there's nothing that crosses into the brain-, brain barrier. So actually you get no dilation of pupils, no sedative effects. It's just purely uh, whatever is not central you'll get your effects so that includes the dryness of the mouth the increased heart rate you'll get some peristalsis uh, slow peristalsis in the intestines and uh, what's also an interesting fun fact is that glycopyrrolate was just approved by the fda and made into whites for antiperspiration that's how strong of drying medication it is and you've probably seen the commercial it's called q brexa uh, which is basically glycopyrrolate soaked in the cloth so it does work well.
0: That's fascinating, man. Uh, I, I routinely make a habit of not watching TV, so I haven't seen the commercial. And there you I, go. <laughs> and I didn't. And I did not know that. Uh, yet another yeah, reason why podcasts can be fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you know, if, even though we use glycopyrrolate in our practice, not just for increasing heart rate, but if you need someone salivating a lot, maybe from you gave ketamine, or maybe they're getting EGD, glycopyrrolate has its place to induced its side effects, which is
0: really dry mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about it already. Right. Uh why don't you give us a rundown on neostigmine? Sounds good. So neostigmine
1: is the uh next drug that we're gonna be talking about. It's also known as prostigmine. It's probably been the longest drug that we've used for a quote unquote reversal of our paralytics. So it's considered an anticholinesterase agent. So the method of action is that it actually inhibits anticholinesterase enzymes uh, by creating a carbamylated ester at the esteratic site. And so in essence, it cannot hydrolyze acetylcholine until the bond separates. And so it creates a ton of acetylcholine to saturate right in that receptor. So it's just not being broken down. And uh, since the acetylcholine starts just building up at that receptor site. You're basically kicking out all that paralytic that was attached to that receptor. So in the essence, we call it a reversal, but really what we're doing is competing at the receptor site because we're not actually truly removing it like the Scamadex. So dosing for it is about 0.03 to 0.07 milligrams per kilogram. Most popular dosing is we just go by 0.05 milligrams per kilogram IV, and a max dose should only be about 5 milligrams, which is usually what's in the pre-filled syringes. Pediatrics is the same uh, dosing uh, as adults. The onset time, which is very important to know, is 3 to 5 minutes IV. So it's not an immediate effect. So when you give it, you want to time it out right, knowing that when you gave it, you want to give it. It's time to really work and uh, make sure you have full twitches and make sure you have your paralysis off um, before you do anything else for uh, finishing your case. Uh, Duration is about 30 to 60 minutes. It's metabolism and excretion is actually 50-50 for both between kidney and hepatic. So indications, we use it to reverse our non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. So that's key. It doesn't do anything to sexinicoline. It actually makes sexinicoline last longer, but it will help to reverse our non-depolarizers. It's contraindicated for cholinergic crisis, hypersensitivity to neostigmine, urinary or intestinal obstruction, and peritonitis. So you want to be cautious in using this drug and uh, be wary of the side effects such as bradycardia, Um, It can cause a nodal rhythm, hypotension, bronchospasm, respiratory depression, seizures, dysarthria, headaches, nausea, vomiting, anaphylaxis, and it can cause increased oral, pharyngeal, and bronchial secretions. So that's a lot of side effects. And so how do you even remember all these side effects? Well, if you think about it, if you know where acetylcholine works from your entire body, from your intestines to your mouth, to your muscles, then you know where the side effects will happen. So just think about it as a, you're giving a bolus of acetylcholine, uh, essentially, and so you're causing all these things to overreact. So it's a quaternary amine, so it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, and it also decreases pseudocholinesterase that's found in the plasma, hence why it causes increased sex duration. Would you give it to a pregnant patient? So there's actually contradicting literature of whether to give neostigmine or not and that's because one of the most devastating things during pregnancy is having decreased fetal heart tones and so the problem is is that even though neostigmine doesn't completely cross the blood-brain barrier it is shown to cause some fetal bradycardia in the baby. And they actually, some sources recommend that you should use atropine just to be sure instead of glyco to not have any risk of bradycardia. And another thing too, is that glyco does not cross into the placenta like atropine does. So it's just something to think about if your patient is pregnant and needs per, uh, paralysis. So acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, such as neostigmine and adrophonium, are only clinical function with a mild to moderate block so what we usually say is that at uh, a train of four of one to two after rocuronium administration and during coflurane and uh anesthetic the median recovery time of a train of four ratio of 0.9 to 0.9 when 0.07 milligrams per kilogram of neostigma was given is 49 minutes with a range of 13 to 146 minutes so it really shows you that it really it's not a really effective drug and we've seen that clinically I, just based on how dramatic our differences are in reversal between Sigamidex now that we have that versus neostigmine for getting rid of our paralytic. And uh, train of four at three, the median recovery time for a train of four ratio of 0.9 when we gave 0.07 milligram for killing of neostigmine was 17 minutes. So just waiting for a train of four from two to three decreased our time from 49 minutes all the way down to 17 minutes to getting pretty much what we define as full, uh, most of your recovery, full recovery from paralysis. So even though it, it decreases the time so much, it's still quite a while, just 17 minutes and still having someone who is uh, semi-paralyzed, it's really not something you want to go through. Um, seeing your patient, that's, we consider to determine in the anesthesia community is a floppy fish because they really do look like they are having really trouble breathing if you uh, still see some paralytic on board. yeah. So that's neostigmine. Anything else you can think of, John?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, you uh, you hit it all. So just to emphasize a few things, you know, we talk about the clinical onset. You'll start seeing some effect of neostigmine at three to five minutes, but I think the, the data that you just went through is from a study uh, that I can provide in the show notes. So what the emphasis there is is that neostigmine, because of its kind of secondary action, you know, it's it's an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So as you explained, Michael, it takes time for enough acetylcholine to build up at the neuromuscular junction to competitively knock off the paralytics that are at that junction and then effectively depolarizing the neuromuscular junction. So it takes a long time for neostigmine to work. So yes, the textbooks might say an onset time of three to five minutes, but you have to think about what is the actual peak clinical effect and because it's a paralytic reversal that's what we're most interested in and so if you have someone who has a really deep neuromuscular blockade with a train of four count of one to two and you give the maximum dose of neostigmine at 0.07 the median time of recovery to a train of four count to 0.09 which again is what we consider clinically relevant uh, in terms of absolute reversal in return of you know, function of pharyngeal muscles, the diaphragm, those kind of things. It takes 49 minutes. If you give neostigmine with one or two twitches, so that's a long time. Most people are not mm-hmm. waiting that long between when they reverse and when they extubate a patient. So your patient may be at risk for post-extubation, post-operative, neuromuscular weakness, residual neuromuscular blockade, in adverse respiratory events. So that is, that is a real problem. That's a serious problem that's been looked at and is a big culprit in respiratory events and PACUs um, around the world. So, uh, and mm-hmm. then as, as you pointed out, if you wait till a train of count, excuse me, train a four count of three, so if you wait for more acetylcholine to spontaneously build up at the neuromuscular junction, then you give neostigmine as kind of a boost to that uh, spontaneous recovery. The median recovery time drops to 17 minutes when you give the full reversal dose. So, neostigmine is not immediate; it does take time, and so keep that in mind. It's it's kind of helpful because you can you could potentially start a reversal a little bit earlier towards the end of a case, and and know that you need you know a solid 15 minutes before you've got full reversal, and that's if you're starting at three twitches. You know, in my clinical practice, Sugamidex is very commonly used. Our institution is looking at pushing back on that a little bit because of the expense, but it's very common. And I think for some of our new anesthesia learners, uh, they don't use neostigmine as commonly as some of the older providers do. And there is a little bit of an art, especially if you understand the risk for postoperative neuromuscular blockade. Uh, It takes a little bit of a deeper understanding of peak effect to really use neostigmine effectively. Absolutely, which brings us to Sugamidex, all right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we've, also, we've also talked a lot about this medication. So, um, so Sugamidex, or Bridian is the trade name, is a uh, selective reversal agent. So it specifically reverses steroidal neuromuscular blockers, rocuronium, and vecuronium. So remember, it has no effect on succinylcholine, and it has no effect on cisatricurium. There have been numerous case reports of people giving Sugaminex to folks who are paralyzed with Cisatricurium and wondering why their patient is not reversed. You got to remember that neostigmine is your ticket for Cisatricurium and Sugaminex is your reversal agent if you have it available for rocuronium and vecuronium. So specifically the mechanism of action, it is a modified gamma cyclodextrin molecule which directly encapsulates the molecules of vecuronium and rocuronium simply, we'll call this the pac-man molecule or the zinc molecule it literally is arranged mm-hmm. in a circle and binds permanently with the amino steroid neuromuscular blockers rocuronium and becuronium the dose for sugamidex is dependent upon the number of twitches you have uh, with a patient who's paralyzed so it depends on the degree of neuromuscular blockade so for an adult an off-label dose which has been described in peer-reviewed literature is a dose of one milligram per kilogram if you have four out of four twitches but you notice some fade so the manufacturer their minimum dose is two milligrams per kilogram so that's why the one milligram per kilogram dose is considered off-label but note that it has been described in the literature in peer-reviewed literature uh, for four to four twitches with fade so, manufacturer's recommended minimum dose is 2 milligrams per kilogram, and that is after the return of 2 out of 4 twitches. You should go to a dose of 4 milligrams per kilogram if you have a deeper neuromuscular blockade. So, this is after the return of 1 to 2 post-Titanic count twitches. So, what that means, post tetanic count, is that you give a stimulus or tetany with a peripheral nerve simulator, typically at 50 hertz for five seconds. It feels like almost as long as waiting for Vecuronium to set up. Five seconds is a long time to give uh, tetany. Then you trigger a train of four and you count the twitches. So what that does is it simulates an overwhelming release of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, and then you check twitches and you see how many twitches you have. So that's considered a post-tetanic count. And if you're at a post-titanic count of one to two twitches, uh, so you're very profoundly neuromuscular blocked, the dose of sugammadex is four milligrams per kilogram. And the last dose range that is described by the manufacturer is 16 milligrams per kilogram. And that is for an immediate reversal of 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium. So if you gave 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium typically for an RSI, induction dose of that paralytic, and you find yourself, the only reason to reverse that immediately would be if you are in a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation and you need to try to salvage the airway by getting the patient spontaneously breathing, well, you need to immediately reverse rocuronium. Neostigmine is not going to cut it. You're profoundly neuromuscular blocked, but Sugamidex can, if you give essentially an overwhelming amount of Sugamidex, it will go in there and gobble up all those molecules of rocuronium and effectively reverse the rocuronium. Uh, now, this is very interesting. They have done studies of this, controlled studies, not of lost airways, but of effective reversal of neuromuscular blockade of rocuronium. And the recommendation is that you wait for three minutes after the rocuronium. So you Uh, typically you'll be in that situation, right? Because you've been fiddling around with the airway and you've lost the airway and now you're scrambling, you're thinking, oh God, I need to give 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex. Uh, So it's typically have already been three minutes, but that is the technical recommendation from the manufacturer. So giving that, what is fascinating about this, and we mentioned this, um, uh, I believe in part one of the top drawer rundown when we were talking about rocuronium, Uh, Some people say that rocuronium will become the drug of choice for RSI because of this effect of Sugamidex, that you can salvage an airway after you gave an induction dose, an RSI dose of rocuronium, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. If you lose the airway, you can reverse that with 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex and the full reversal to train a four count 0.9 or higher is quicker than the spontaneous recovery of Sugamidex. So that is studied in, you know, any box of Sugamidex, I think you can pull out the manufacturer's drug label, and that study is in there, so you can read that. Uh, So moving on, so for pediatric doses, um, Sugamidex is not currently FDA-approved in the United States for patients under the age of 16. I know many children's hospitals are using this for kids less than the age of 16, but that is a consideration. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics. The onset is almost immediately, up to three minutes for peak effect. I mean, it, it truly is like flipping the light switch off on the paralytics. It is, it is amazing at how fast this works. Uh, I think due to its speed of onset and its definitive ability to bind with rocuronium and vecuronium, it's changed practice a lot of times. I mean, you think about flipping a you know a back case over to supine. You can keep someone paralyzed and get them turned back over supine with a relatively light degree of anesthesia and then immediately reverse their paralytic and the patient's ready to breathe next extubate. So mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, the duration of action of Sugaminex is essentially permanent. It forms a permanent compound with rocuronium and vecuronium. There are very, very few incidences of residual neuromuscular blockade or recurarization as sometimes it's referred to as uh, with Sugamidex. Um, Typically, that is only a problem if it was underdosed to begin with. The half-life of Sugamidex is considered to be two hours. It's prolonged in renal failure. The compound is not metabolized, but it is renally excreted, and 95% is unchanged drug. Indications, of course, are reversal of rocuronium and vecuronium only. Contraindications are simply known hypersensitivity to Sugamidex. Now, there are a few interesting precautions and side effects. Sugamidex has been known to cause anaphylaxis, bradycardia, and obviously it's a reversal agent, so we should be monitoring post-delivery of any reversal agent. You should continue to monitor twitches to see that the medication actually went into the vein and it's actually functional. Uh, There is a very small risk of coagulopathy and bleeding, Sugaminex is associated with an increase of about 25% of your PTT and PTINR for about an hour. So, for about an hour after you give it, you have a bump of your PTT and PTINR for about 25%. However, in studies, there have been no incidence of increased bleeding in any patients that Sugaminex has been given to. Teremiphine is a medication that may decrease the efficacy of Sugaminex. Now, tamoxifen is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and it's used to block the effects of estrogen in estrogen-dependent breast cancers and for the prevention of prostate cancer. So if you have a patient on tamoxifen, you should think in the back of your mind, oh, this is a steroidal-based estrogen receptor modulator, and basically Sugamidex will work on that medication. So that's why it decreases the efficacy of Sugamidex similarly, oral contraceptives are also acted upon by Sugamidex. So because they're steroidal based, Sugamidex will bind with oral contraceptives. So the recommendation is that if a patient is on an oral contraceptive for birth control, that they use a second form of birth control for about a week after the administration of Sugamidex until all the Sugamidex that didn't bind with your Rocuronium or vecuronium is actually cleared renally. You don't want someone having an unplanned pregnancy because you gave them Sugaminex. Now, many hospitals will send home with their discharge instructions. It's an automated kick out from many electronic medical records. Uh, information on hey, you receive sugammadex if you're taking birth control. Use another form of contraception for a week. One last precaution or side effect to think about is uh, it is recommended to avoid in renal failure. Now, it will work in renal failure. However, because Sugaminex is renally excreted, there is going to be prolonged excretion times with Sugaminex, and the effects of that have not been fully studied. So if for some reason Sugaminex was all you had with a renal failure patient, uh, it still technically would be functional, efficacious. But the recommendation from the manufacturer is that we avoid that because it's renally excreted. For pregnancy risk factors, there's limited data on using it following the C-section. There's no known teratogenicity. Uh, It's not known if it is transferred in human milk. Other, oh yeah, so other considerations. I think lastly, and I think we've mentioned this before, is that sugaminix is really expensive. So when you think about the common dosing, you know, the minimum dose is two milligrams per kilogram. The, the vials that our institution has are 100 milligrams per mil and it's two mils. So you get 200 milligrams out of it. So at the minimum dosing, you're looking, you know, let's say for a hundred kilogram patient, you're going to give 200 milligrams, which is one vial. Now one vial comes into a patient charge uh, currently around just shy of $800, which is about the same charge. Uh, now cost to the hospital and charge to the patient are different things, but it's about the same charge to a patient as a full reversal with neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. Well, those have max doses, right? of five milligrams and one milligram respectively for neostigmine and glycopyrrolate uh, as reversal agents. But as soon as you go over a hundred excuse me, a hundred kilograms with a patient, which is not too uncommon in today's uh, epidemic of obesity, you're popping the top on two vials of Sugamidex and you've just doubled the expense of your reversal. And some people have noticed that we had a we had a PACU nurse at a local institution here in Maine that uh, had a family member I think um, get reversed with sugammadex and they were combing the bill and were shocked to find out that their uh, bill for just reversal alone was close to sixteen hundred dollars uh, for that case. So, wow! Uh, so it is a consideration. Um, it is a it's not a drug that's completely risk free. There are considerations to think about it, but I think uh, I think Michael. You know, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe longer, uh, Sugaminex is probably one of the biggest changes that we've seen in the delivery of anesthesia in the United States. I mean, it's obviously been uh, around in absolutely. Europe. Yeah, it, it's been around in Europe for longer, but, you know, I think, I mean, Ivy Tylenol was pretty awesome. Um, you know, there's some advances in, in monitoring, but in terms of pharmacological uh, agents that we have, I think Sugaminex has been a game changer.
1: Absolutely. And once it goes generic, I think it's going to be a whole new wave of ways we reverse and how we look at it. Because I think once it goes generic and we can finally get it cheaper, you won't think twice really if you have to choose one versus the other just because of cost. And that's like what you said. It is usually the reason why we avoid it or we attempt to be careful when we choose it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you 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 did such a good job running through the the numerous side effects of neostigmine uh mm-hmm. you know and, and you, you, you know you give neostigmine and you've got to give another agent just to manage the side effects of it and side yeah. sidesteps all of that it's 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 definitely not risk free and Sugamidex is not appropriate for everybody, but you know in in current use and in use in europe it's it's really been shown to be effective against rock that's yeah and I'll say
1: that. You know, well, now let's say you have a choice, and you're like, I could use one vial this, or I could use neostigmine and glyco, There's really no wrong answer. It is provider preference. It is your personal experience uh, when you have a choice between the two, and it's also what uh, what the hospital instructs you to do. Yeah. Um, I find that when when I know there is a high risk for extubation, where I need my patients. Uh, breathing to be a hundred percent where it was before any anesthetic was on board. Then I think, okay, I should probably use the on this person. Let's say they have severe COPD or something where I know even just a little lingering paralysis will be an issue. Then I don't, don't even think twice. I know Cigamide would be the best thing. So I always think what's the best thing for my patient and, and the reason why I would use it. So that's how I look at it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, it's, it, it's, it's crazy to think that here in, in, in 2019, um, you know, our healthcare systems have evolved uh, to the point in the United States where where cost is still such a big variable in terms of the decision-making that we, that we do uh, perioperatively and in healthcare in general. But this is one of those areas where, you know, you think about um, in so many ways, Sugaminex is a superior medication than the combination of neostigmine and glycopyrrolate, but we often don't reach for it because it costs patients a lot of money. And I think in some ways you can make the case that it is definitively better in many ways than neostigmine and glycopyrrolate Mm -hmm. in terms of its absolute reversal and the decreased risk of postoperative residual neuromuscular blockade and some of the respiratory effects that can come from that. But uh, still, yeah, sometimes we're going to reach for neostigmine because of cost. I think understanding what we talked about with neostigmine in terms of uh, its relative M potency, its relative in efficacy when it comes to deeply blocked, deeply paralyzed patients. Uh, it's, it's a weak drug. Um, it does not mm-hmm. effectively reverse patients and it puts them at a higher risk. If you're in an yeah. institution where people are pushing back because Sugamidex is expensive, actually understanding neostigmine and how it works and being able to communicate its relative efficacy for profoundly neuromuscular blocked patients, meaning that it's not super effective, that it takes a long time to reverse, maybe a really good case to make for selectively reaching for sugaminics for your patients. So uh, hopefully that will be meaningful for folks who listen to the podcast and go forward. Yeah. It's all based on what really comes down to cost, like you were saying. And
1: if you have to wait a half hour before you can use neostigmine, it just doesn't seem economically the right decision to wait and just go for that Sigamon
0: Well, you're right. And and I can remember coming through school where we didn't have Psigamon X. And some cases, you know, you're at the end of the case and you've got, you know, the like maybe one Twitch. Like you really want it to be one Twitch, but you really don't have a Twitch yet. Mm-hmm. And you gotta make the decision that, hey, we are uh hanging out. Tell the surgeon, you know, it's gonna be a long room turnover because uh, it's not safe to reverse the patient yet. And I yeah, think, think X can be an answer to that situation. Like you said, it, that it can make it cost-effective, um, certainly to save that OR time and turnover time. But on the other hand, if you are um, only able to use neostigmine in those instances, it's super important to remember how to use it safely and to reverse absolutely. Uh, at the right time. Yeah. Well, well cool. Anything right. you want to wrap up with... Um, I mean, those were the reversal agents, essentially, uh, you know, plus a little bit with atropine and glycopyrrolate in there uh, before we shift gears to the uppers and downers.
1: No, I think that was great. I, I hope that covered in depth of, uh, everything that people were wondering. And uh, I think it will help you be way more informed, just knowing the big differences. And really, truly, all you're really doing is looking at risk versus benefit and also kind of incorporating the cost. But you know that if this is the safest way to go, I'm going to make that decision. That's what we're hoping that you can make from all this information. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, we're, we're taking the time. It's a rundown. It's not comprehensive, but I hope that, um, as we've done, I think with reversals and a couple of other medications, where it's important for us to slow down and kind of dive deep into some things, hopefully that would be helpful for listeners and, obviously the benefit of a podcast is that you can pause it and come back to it and, and cut it up between your commutes mm-hmm. and workouts and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. so in shifting gears, we're going to talk about, yes. um, things that can help us control and manipulate blood pressure and, and heart rate. So how do you want right. to get going on this?
1: We will begin with metoprolol, which I'm sure many of you have heard before, also known as low pressure for the trade name. It is, uh, primarily a beta one selective blocker. Uh, so the method of action is that it actually blocks beta one receptors of the heart muscle. So it decreases phase four of the cardiac action potential. So in essence, it reduces the sodium update, uptake, sorry, and, uh, phase three to be specific, thus reducing uh, potassium release. Dosing for botolpilol in, uh, vial for IV push, it, it usually is dosed between two to five milligrams and you titrate it to effects uh, and you shouldn't give any more than 15 milligrams uh, at any time. Um, for PD, it's very unlikely to be given IV due to reliance on heart rate for cardiac output. For onset metoprolol, you have to remember that it does take about five minutes to really kick in uh, IV. Duration is about three to eight hours. So once you give it, you are committed. The metabolism, it's primarily hepatic by the CYP enzyme. So like I said before, its indications is to slow down heart rate. So if you can think of a reason not to give it, it would be if the heart rate is already low, so you would never want to give it to further reduce it. Um, and also, especially if the patient has coronary artery disease, uh, it's, it is used for uh, controlling AFib. Uh, precautions, you have to be careful when you give it for people who, like I said, are in bradycardia, they have sick sinus syndrome, they have a heart block if they have no hypersensitivities, or if they're really already feeling faint and tired. Another thing is for pregnancy, it is not safe for pregnant patients, but it's okay for breastfeeding. Um, I just wanted to correct before what I just said. I said that it is it is safe to use for people with coronary artery disease. You just have to be aware that the reason it's safe for them is because when you lower the heart rate, it decreases the demand, but it's not contraindicated for patients with coronary artery disease. And uh, that's a total.
0: Yeah, that's great. So again, it's a, it's a beta one selective blocker. And, you know, you think about alpha and beta receptors, beta one, if folks will remember has to do with heart rate. So chronotropy, it also has to do with myocardial contractility, which is inotropy touches on uh conduction velocity, which is dromotropy, and some other things. So I think when we classically think about metoprolol, we do think that we're looking at heart rate control, but remember that you will see a reduction of myocardial contractility and some conduction velocity. So, and then interestingly, uh, the next beta blocker that we want to talk about is labetalol, law, which also has some selective alpha one effects along with non-selective beta one and beta two blockade. So the mechanism of action is that it blocks both alpha and beta receptors, and the ratio between that block is a blockade of 1 to 7, alpha to beta. So it's a much stronger beta blocker than it is an alpha blocker, uh, but what is what is very interesting with the beta law is that it does have some alpha 1 blockade, which again has to do with vasoconstriction. So if you're wanting to reduce someone's um, heart rate and specifically their blood pressure or their afterload, their peripheral vascular resistance, libidolol would be a little bit better choice than metoprolol if you're looking for both the heart rate and blood pressure reduction. So dosing for law for adults is IV 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram over two minutes. And you can repeat that dose up to Q5 minutes up to a total dose of 300 milligrams. So if you're not getting the effect you want with the first dose, you can repeat your dose Q5 minutes. For pediatrics, the dose is IV 0.2 to 1 milligram per kilogram with a max of 20 milligrams. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics of labetalol include an onset time of 1 to 3 minutes, a duration of around 15 minutes up to 2 hours, so you don't get as long of a duration of action with Law as you do metoprolol. So you're not quite as committed when you give this as well, which is another way to look at it. The half-life is five to eight hours to get fully eliminated from the body. It is uh, metabolized through conjugation from glucuronic acid, uh, and it's excreted 5% unchanged in the, in the urine. It has a prolonged duration uh, of action in patients with liver disease, and there is no increase uh, in the duration of action with patients with kidney disease. The indications, as we've uh, mentioned, are to prevent or treat hypertension and or tachycardia. It's great to think of needing to block catecholamine release during or after a case. So examples would be with cranies or carotid AAAs triple A's or ENT cases. So, you know, uh, both during a case, but also as your patient's waking up, law will give you, uh, again, both a little bit of alpha blockade along with uh, the beta 1 and beta 2. One should use care when you have patients with bronchitis and emphysema, peripheral vascular disease, pheochromocytoma, which obviously should always have care with those patients, uh, diabetic patients, contraindicated in patients with asthma, overt heart failure, a degree of heart block that is more severe than first degree heart block, so uh, secondary heart block or third degree heart block, and then hepatic failure. Other precautions or side effects include hypotension and bradycardia, of course, uh, ventricular arrhythmias, congestive heart failure, bronchospasm, diarrhea, chest pain. Pregnancy risk factors include that it's commonly used to control hypertension in pregnancy, but it's not without risk. And then um, other considerations, of course, as we have mentioned, is that this is probably, I think, the drug of choice if you want both blood pressure and heart rate control, And it's also a nice drug. You know, we're going to talk about hydralazine here in a minute, which is a kind of a a very long-acting alpha blockade. But uh, labetalol is great if you need to acutely control someone's blood pressure and heart rate. And then you can see um, if you need to get on top of it through some other mechanism, maybe better multimodal analgesia control, a deepening of of the anesthetic, or just getting them through some sort of acute hypertensive or high stimulation moment during the case. And then you know that you've not committed several hours uh, with using labetalol. So, any tips that you want to share, Michael?
1: No, that's exactly right. Labetalol is is a great drug. We use it. We all use it quite often. I think when we want basically good numbers for the PACU is how I look at it. If you want <laughs> uh, good blood pressure and and heart rate numbers, you get your labetalol out. You get you start titrating it in, um, and that's yeah, that's been pretty much the main main reason we use it.
0: Yeah. Ne- never underestimate uh, the power of looking good to the PACU nurses.
1: <laughs> That's right. You got to, you, you got to, it's all about uh, presentation, right? So you got to Sm- make sure it looks good.
0: Smoke and mirrors, <laughs> smoke and mirrors. That's right. Making it, it look easy.
1: <laughs> That's right. Making and, and so moving on from <laughs> the next beta blocker, Esmolol, uh, this is also a really great drug at it's quite used often. It's kept making a bigger, bigger of a comeback because now it's being classified as a analgesic uh, drug as well. So esmolol, also known as brevet block, is a selective beta one blocker, very similar to uh, the drugs we were talking before of labetalol and metoprolol. Method of action is obviously it blocks beta one receptors. The dosing of it is uh, for adults 50 to 200 mics per kilo loading dose and an infusion if required starting at 50 mics per kilo per minute to a max of 300 mics per kilogram per minute. But more commonly, we just a lot of the time, uh, this is what I do, is I just give a few boluses at a time. I I don't usually do the loading dose, but that's what the textbook uh, recommends. And PD is the same dosing, but it's not commonly given to pediatrics mainly because they are reliant on their heart rate Uh, for cardiac output. So the onset of Esmolol is one to two minutes, but here's where Esmolol really sticks out in comparison to all the beta blockers we've been talking about, and, and that's in its duration. So Esmolol only lasts 10 to 20 minutes. So you're not fully committed when you give it, and it peaks in five minutes. And if you keep repeating it, it does prolong its dose but it's a great drug if you need that quick blockage of a catecholamine release of some sort to not let it spike up. So that's when asthma really comes in uh, to help you out. So metabolism, because it's so short, it's actually metabolized by the RBC esterases that's located in the plasma. So it's not reliant on liver or renal function to, to excrete it or to metabolize it. Uh, so indications. So anytime you really can think of needing to lower your heart rate or blocking a, a surge of catecholamine release, you can think of using Esmolol. So if you have SVT or severe tachycardia with hypertension for a short duration, you can think of Esmolol to help you block that response. So it's contraindicated and known hypersensitivities to actually somatidine or any other H2 antagonist, which I actually didn't know until I read this. So if Someone is allergic to famotidine or any other H2 antagonist. You want to be careful using esmolol in these patients. So other precautions is that esmolol can cause a headache, uh, cause constipation, drowsiness as the most common side effects. You want to be careful with patients with asthma, COPD, heart blocks, obviously, cardiac failure. Uh, that's not caused by tachycardia and diabetes. So pregnancy uh, can cause fetal bradycardia, so you want to be careful uh, using that in any pregnant patients. And so really, when you think of Esmolol, you want to think, when would I give it? And I just told you uh, or mentioned before about how it has some analgesic properties. So there's more studies coming out and people are starting to use this as part of their opioid-free anesthetic, and that's an Esmolol drip all throughout the case. And uh, what's found is that when you can kind of when you block that catecholamine, you kind of block that uh, pain response that's multiplying with all that catecholamine release. So people actually use it when they're doing inductions as a substitute to fentanyl. And other times, if you use it all throughout the case, they do see that there is a decrease in postoperative pain, um, especially when used with other opioid-free drugs. So I think esmolol definitely has its place. I love using it when I feel like there's going to be a huge surge in heart rate. And I really want to control it in a tight area. Then I would use esmolol. Or if I have maybe a young person who's very anxious and the heart rate is already over 100 before we even started our induction, I feel like esmolol would really help to control that surge uh, in catecholamines. So I think that really sums up esmolol and having its its place in anesthesia, and why it's it's used. Quite commonly, anything else you can add,
0: John? Yeah, I think that's a great rundown. It's a super short-acting beta blocker. It can help you gain control over heart rate. It can help mellow people out who are awake um, in a short-acting way. Uh, I've used esmolol as an alternative to fentanyl on induction. I I don't really know. I don't think I've read any studies that show it has. You know, any kind of amazing effect at, you know, creating an opioid sparing or opioid-free anesthetic. But uh, we do know that the more opioids that are given during the case, the more both pain and likelihood that opioids will be used postoperatively. So in an effort to control, you know, the total amount of opioids given, I'll sometimes reach for Esmolol for an induction and replace uh, the fentanyl that I would typically give. But yeah, it's a great mm-hmm. medication and Esmolol infusions are, they've been around for a long time, but I think that they're getting a resurgence as people look at opioid-free anesthesia as a real option to provide for patients. Yeah. Cool. So next up is Hydralazine, trade name, Apresoline. So this is a direct acting arterial vasodilator. So the mechanism of action is that it directly relaxes the smooth muscles of the arterioles. So uh, it has no effect on the venous system, and it does this by activating guanylate cyclase, which causes dilation of the arteries, so in in arterioles specifically. So the dose for hydralazine is typically 2.5 milligrams up to 40 milligrams, you could think of it as 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. And the pediatric dose is the same as the adult dose, which we just outlined. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics is that the onset is 5 to 20 minutes with about 10 minutes of uh, being an average onset time. The duration is 2 to 4 hours, so you're definitely committing to this. Some sources say it can last as long as 6 hours. Metabolism and excretion, it is metabolized by the liver and excreted by the kidneys. It can last up to 16 hours uh, if you have a patient with severe renal impairment. And so caution is obviously warranted with patients in end-stage renal disease or liver disease. The indication, of course, is if you want to drop the blood pressure, especially when the heart rate is already low and you're not looking for any kind of beta blockade. You want to preserve heart rate, but drop the blood pressure. A contraindication is that obviously the patient is already hypotensive. You don't need to give hydralazine. And some precautions and side effects be careful with patients that have coronary artery disease or heart disease, patients using MOAIs. Side effects include hypotension, tachycardia, palpitations, angina, anxiety, headache, lupus, and many others. So it can exaggerate um, SLE and others. So, pregnancy risk factors uh, caution is warranted during pregnancy. The risk has not been ruled out, but sometimes the benefits outweigh the risk. So, for instance, if you have a patient who has severe preeclampsia, they're very hypertensive, hydralazine may be a great choice to reach for in that situation. And then I think there's a consideration of, you know, when would you pull hydralazine out versus labetalol? So for me, Michael, that comes down to the duration of action. If I want something that's short acting and I want to, you know, block an effect for a short amount of time, which is typically what I'm doing when I'm given anesthesia, because patient condition, point in the surgery and everything else is subject to change. And then if I'm looking for kind of a long blockade and arterial vasodilation and like an antihypertensive, typically, really, I I usually only reach for hydralazine when I'm in PACU, uh, to be honest with you. But um, what are your Mm -hmm. thoughts? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, if I know that the blood pressure is just consistently staying high because I know I'm going to be committed as soon as I give it and the heart rate is on the lower end, then I will pull up the hydralazine and I would give it as they're closing because it does take time to kick in. That's the most important thing to remember is that the onset time is 5 to 20 minutes, but an average of 10 minutes. So you know, a lot of the things we give are instantaneous, uh, but this one is not. and so if I know that I want that blood pressure lowered, I usually do it. If I know that, especially when they have gas still on board and the blood pressure is high, I mean, what do you think is going to happen to the blood pressure when the gas is off? You know, then I, that's when I start considering giving hydralazine something to smooth them out when they get to Pacio. Uh,
0: yeah. That's, so a yeah, great that's point. when I usually do that. Mm-hmm. That's great.
1: Next drug, phenylephrine or also known as neosnephrine for its trade name. Definitely a very common drug in, uh, anesthesia that we give. So its class is it's a synthetic non-catecholamine alpha-adrenergic agonist. So its method of action is that it directly stimulates the alpha-1 receptors. And like we said before, the alpha-1 receptors are the blood vessels. um, And when they are stimulated, they will constrict. So the dose for an adult is 10 to 100 mic boluses, and IV infusions can be 20 to 80 mics per minute. But remember, this is from the textbook, but sometimes we, I've seen 200 microgram boluses, um, 150, 50 mites. So it's really tailored or titrated to the patient's needs. Uh, pediatric dosing is 0.5 to 10 mites per kilogram, but it is rare to give. And uh, we'll go into why later on. So onset is immediate. Duration is about 15 to 20 minutes, and it's primarily metabolized by the liver. So the reason you give it is really anytime you can think of needing to raise your blood pressure. So if you have shock or you need to treat hypotension just because of the effects of the anesthetics you're giving, or if someone needs, or let's say someone's an SVT and their blood pressure is affected, you can give them phenylephrine to increase the blood pressure. And because you increase the blood pressure uh, due to the Bainbridge reflex, you'll have a decrease in your heart rate just as a uh, reflex from the cardiac uh, side of it to, to compensate for this increase in blood pressure that your body didn't expect to occur. So contraindications, there truly is no contraindications. So you want to just be very careful when using this drug in the elderly uh, people with hyperthyroidism, bradycardia, heart blocks, or severe arteriosclerosis. So for pregnancy, there's not enough studies, but we do commonly use phenylephrine, especially after spinals, to increase the blood pressure. The other thing that we'll will talk more about is when to use phenylephrine versus ephedrine versus levofed, uh, levofed and when you should use which because each one has their own specific way of... they. They all increase blood pressure, but they all affect different areas. And so phenylephrine is the one where it primarily just affects the blood vessels and nothing else. And so you have to just pick one based on what the clinical symptoms are. And anything else you can think of, John, for phenylephrine?
0: Yeah, I think phenylephrine is such a commonly given drug. And I think you hit a lot of the main things. So it's it's one of the go to. Medications that we reach for to deal with the vasodilation that our anesthetics so often induce. So, again, I think remembering that it is, uh, you know, it's direct stimulation of alpha 1 receptors. So, if you're looking for some beta agonism, you got to switch over to ephedrine, which is what we're talking about next. But, um, yeah, any there other thoughts go. to close on phenylephrine?
1: No, that's it. I think it's, you'll, we've all, we all use it. So, it's definitely a very popular drug.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, Um, So ephedrine is up next, and it is a uh, synthetic non-catecholamine sympathomimetic and a vasopressor with direct and indirect actions, and it also has some central nervous system effects. So the mechanism of action is that uh, it indirectly acts on the alpha-1 and beta-1 receptors throughout the body. So the indirect action is that it is implicated in helping release norepinephrine in the body, which does say take some time for that to happen. So you can have a little bit of a slower onset with ephedrine versus phenylephrine uh, for that reason. So uh, the dose for adults is typically 5 to 25 milligrams IV bolus, or you could think of it as 100 to 300 mics per kilogram. So usually I would see most folks probably start with 5 milligrams to 10 milligrams of of ephedrine uh, or going all the way up to 25 milligrams. The PD dose is uh, 0.2 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Pharmacodynamics, onset is considered to be immediate. I think that phenylephrine will act a little bit quicker at times than ephedrine in terms of seeing a change in your blood pressure. Duration is 10 minutes to 60 minutes. The half-life is 36 hours. It's mainly metabolized and eliminated in the kidneys. And there's a little bit of action from the liver in that, but it's primarily uh, metabolized and eliminated through the kidneys. Indications, of course, are treatment for hypotension and bradycardia. So I think I'll reach for ephedrine oftentimes over phenylephrine if I've got a patient who's already bradycardic, say after insufflation of the abdomen, doing a laparoscopic case, and I'm concerned about the bradycardia side effect that you can sometimes see from the alpha agonism from phenylephrine. So I'll reach for ephedrine to help out with a little beta stimulation. Precautions would be, you know, obviously uh, cautious use in patients with a history of hypertension or ischemic heart disease. It can be a little unpredictable in terms of the catecholamine store. So again, you know, it indirectly leads to the release of norepinephrine into the bloodstream. So That's something to think about in terms of both if someone is catecholamine depleted, you may not see as good of an effect from ephedrine. It's also important to note that if you're giving ephedrine over a sustained amount of time, you may see a decrease in its efficacy because you've already triggered the release of stored norepinephrine levels and you need to switch to something else. So... Mm-hmm. Pregnancy risk factor, it's commonly used during spinal administration for C-section. And during pregnancy, it's not been thoroughly studied. It's not recommended for use while breastfeeding. But again, I think risk versus benefit in terms of managing, uh, managing mom and keeping her blood pressure where you want it to be. So some other interesting considerations are that it, it does increase MAC. Uh, so it stimulates the brain kind of like Adderall does. It relies primarily on the release of stored catecholamines, which we've mentioned, which is norepinephrine. And so if it's depleted again from, you know, someone who's um, in an acute state of trauma or, or possible something like chronic cocaine use, ephedrine may not be as effective as you want it to be. So uh, any uh, other tidbits that you want to throw in there, Michael?
1: No, that's perfect. And you'll, you'll see if you, especially if you're new to clinical, pretty much we, we pick one of two, phenylephrine or ephedrine. And if you really want to be real basic, one increases heart rate and one doesn't, but they both increase blood pressure as like a quick and dirty summary.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: All right. So next drug, epinephrine. I'm sure we've all heard of this one, and it's a great – has its place for not just resuscitation, but also for other parts in anesthesia that we, we give it for. Uh, so also known as adrenaline chloride, it's an endogenous catecholamine. Uh, method of action is that it's a sympathomimetic vasopressor. It's a stimulator of beta-1 and alpha-1 receptors. So remember, beta-1 is the heart and alpha-1 is the the vessels, uh, primarily the the arteries. So for dosing adult for cardiac arrest is 0.5 to 1 milligram IV every five minutes. If you need inotropic support, which comes from the beta-1 receptor, that would be 2 to 20 mics per minute or 0.1 to 1 mic per kilogram per minute. And if you have anaphylaxis, then you can push epinephrine 100 to 300 mic's IV um, at a time. And for pediatric dosing, cardiac arrest is 0.01. That is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram IV push every three to five minutes. So a quick way to think about that is, the way I think of it is you take their weight in kilograms and just take 1% of that weight and that's what you push. IV drip is uh, 0.05 milligrams per kilogram per minute, not to exceed one mic per kilogram per minute. And so the onset is immediate. Duration is five to 10 minutes. Metabolism is primarily by the liver. Indications, so epi has a lot of things that we can use it for. So the most common one and uh, the one that I'm sure a lot of you have used it for is for cardiac arrests. It's also used for heart failure for that inotropic support. And if there's blood pressure falling, it also stimulates the alpha receptors for uh, blood pressure support. Can be used for chronic heart failure, profound shock, hypotension, low cardiac output, cardiac index, a failing heart not responsive to other inotropes. So contraindications is you have to be careful with use uh, with coronary artery disease it does stimulate the heart so much so that it requires a lot of oxygen demand. And so if there's already a lot of coronary artery disease going on, you can really cause ischemia or an um, MI. Hypertension is also something you have to be careful of because it will cause an even higher blood pressure. Be careful with diabetics because it does stimulate gluconeogenesis. Be careful with people with hyperthyroidism or people using MAOIs. So precaution side effects. So it makes sense that if you receive epinephrine, it can cause restlessness, fear, headaches, tachycardia, tachyarrhythmias, PVCs, VTAC, MIs, angina, pulmonary edema. There's no notes on pregnancies. It would have to really be, I would think of uh, emergency situations of when you would ever give epinephrine in a pregnancy uh, situation. Noting considerations for epinephrine is that just like atropine, it can be given through the endotracheal tube at 110,000 strength concentration. And uh, another thing is because epinephrine works on so many receptors, there is an order of the, the strength of each one that it stimulates from most to least. And in that order from most to least is beta-2, beta-1, alpha-2, and alpha-1. Uh, anything else you can think of, John, for epinephrine?
0: Yeah, I think epinephrine is, a, is, again, it's a backbone medication that's classic to anesthesia and critical care use. So many anesthesia providers are already familiar with this medication, typically from managing codes with it in the ICU or maybe in the ER or pre-hospital medicine, wherever you were, it's before you got into anesthesia. I think that, you know, so much of what we do in the operating room comes down to push dose pressors, and uh, I always encourage anesthesia learners that I work with to, think about both the benefit of using epinephrine as a push dose presser but then also how to actually how to actually get there because commonly the concentration that we get is like the code version in like the cardboard box in the anesthesia cart or you might have a whole milligram mixed down into 1 mil. so what do you do mm-hmm. with that because literally that's a uh, thousand mics per mil, which is uh, super concentrated typically in like the little glass vial. Sometimes I've seen it in a pop top ampule or the stuff that comes like in the cardboard box uh, that people typically just colloquially refer to as uh code dose epi is one to 10,000 concentration. So that's a milligram of epinephrine mixed into 10 CCs or a hundred mics per mil. So What you can do oftentimes is, um, you know, a good push dose uh, of epinephrine is, you know, as little as five mics to 10 mics, up to 50 mics of epinephrine. So if you're really in a rush, you could grab that cardboard box, hook up the syringe, um, and then give a half cc of that. And that's going to give you 50 mics of epinephrine. But another way to dilute that down is to take one cc out of. The cardboard box of epinephrine, which is to be specific, one to ten thousand concentration, or a milligram in ten cc's. So if you've got a syringe of epi that's a milligram in ten cc's, you can take one cc out of that, which is a hundred mics, and then mix that down into nine cc's of saline. So you dilute that by a factor of ten. So you take it from 100 mics per cc down to 10 mics per cc. And now you can do something with that. I mean, you can give, you know, one cc, two cc's at a time, and you've got a very gentle dose of epinephrine that gives you both alpha and beta. Now, I have mentioned this, uh, you know, to CRNAs kind of around the lunch table And, uh, some people are uncomfortable with that because they just always have considered epinephrine as like you slam them with a a whole milligram at a time, you know, and only, they only reach for it in, in codes or they'll set it up as an infusion. Uh, but push dose epinephrine can be super helpful.
1: So, uh,
0: so just keep that in mind, you know, another way to think about this, to boil it down to three words as kind of a cognitive aid. And this came again from a guy I'm a big fan of, which is Scott Weingard on the podcast of MCRIT. He talks about, you know, having an emergency reflex drill or an ERAD, which is just something that you memorize to to have happen in, you know, some sort of an acute emergency. He says for undifferentiated hypotension, think code epi half. So grab the code concentration of epinephrine, the cardboard box, 1 to 10,000, and of epinephrine, obviously, code epi half and give a half CC, which we've already talked about. That's 50 mics. So usually most patients can handle 50 mics of epinephrine, and that's going to buy you a couple minutes to figure out what's going on and what you're definitively going to do about it.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's
0: good. Code epi half. Code epi half, little uh, memory aid. So, there you go. All right. So yep. the last medication that we're going to talk about on part two of the top drawer rundown is calcium chloride. So this is another medication that's typically – found in you know either an ampule or uh, sometimes a little cardboard box in the in the top drawer of the anesthesia machine or Pyxis. So, so the class of the medication, obviously it's elemental, it's calcium. The mechanism of injury is simply that it increases um, free calcium in the bloodstream, which can have various effects depending on what you're wanting to use it for. The dose typically for an adult is 250 milligrams up to one gram, which is typically what it's, packaged up to in IV push, and you push it slow. Pediatric dose is 10 to 20 milligrams per kilogram. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics include an onset time that is essentially immediate. The duration of action is around four hours, and it's really pharmacologically not metabolized, so it's not broken down. Um, you know, obviously renal excretion with other chemicals and electrolytes, so Indications, uh, typically the reason that it's living in the top of the anesthesia machine is the fact that calcium chloride has positive inotropic effects. So what that means is that it increases cardiac contraction, the contractile force of the heart, and then subsequently your blood pressure. It's contraindicated in ventricular fibrillation and hypercalcemia, of course. And then the precautions and side effects, calcium chloride is very caustic if infiltrated subcutaneously. So if your IV infiltrates and it doesn't go into the blood vessel and it goes sub-Q, you're at a high risk for severe tissue necrosis. So be very careful with what IV you give it in. And for that reason, it's usually preferred that you push this through a central line. What I think is very interesting about calcium, the two times that I see this used most often are when someone is crashing, essentially, you have profound hypotension there. As we used to say in pre-hospital medicine down in Western North Carolina, where I grew up in healthcare, if they're circling the drain uh, or CTD, Mm -hmm. um, you you could reach for calcium chloride to give you some positive inotropy to help with a crashing uh, blood pressure. The other time that I see this used is, uh, when someone is uh, exsanguinating and you're involved in a massive transfusion. So as we know, uh, packed red blood cells are preserved with an agent called CPDA, and the C in that formulation is citrate. And citrate binds to calcium in the bloodstream. So the more packed red blood cells you give, the more natural calcium you're going to bind up in someone's bloodstream. You're going to drop their calcium level, their ionized calcium level, because of the infiltration of citrate. And then therefore, you may see the effects of that. You may see a boggy heart. You may see hypotension. And so if you're several units in to a massive transfusion and you're still struggling with hypotension, calcium may be something that you could reach for. Now, it's a whole other podcast to talk about, you know, deliberative hypotension in terms of resuscitation on an exsanguinating patient, which we won't get into right now. But just think about calcium chloride might be a good medication to reach for if you've given a lot of blood and you're still having hypotension because you may have bound up all of your ionized calcium with the citrate. So anything you want to add on calcium chloride, Michael?
1: No, yeah, that's it. Those are the only two times I can ever think of giving
0: calcium while providing anesthesia. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep, so, exactly. All right. Well, hey, team, if you're still listening with us, you have made it to the end of part two of the Top Drawer Rundown. If my count is right, we are 27 medications in to the uh, top 40 or so most common medications in anesthesia. So we're going to come back with part three, which is kind of the grab bag hodgepodge of stuff you find in the top drawer. And uh, we hope this has been super helpful to you. Um, so check us out for part three of the Top Drawer Rundown.